The Bible reading tonight uh, is from 1 Peter, so we're going to continue on um, in chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 7. Um, just while you're looking that up in your own Bibles, um, just a bit of context from what's been in the previous chapter. The previous chapter is about living godly lives, um, about how we should um, behave in the, in the face of authority. Um, and how our lives can be an example of our faith in Christ, uh, just as Christ set us an example uh, with his humble uh, and quiet conduct in the face of suffering, um, being accused um, and suffering on the cross. So cha- one, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Hey, folks. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors. It's great to have you with us tonight. Uh, This is where we're up to in God's Word, so this is what we're going to be thinking about. Uh, Before we get into the passage, though, one quick announcement, which is uh, to let you guys know uh, that tonight is Emily Latham's last night with us at WBC. Uh, She's moving up north, taking a teaching job in Queensland. Uh, Emily's been at our church since, I think, 2016. Is that correct? Uh, So she's been around for a long time. Many of you have been in fellowship with her in home groups, served alongside her, that kind of stuff. Uh, It's been wonderful to have Emily as part of our community here. And so after the service tonight, as we close, uh, Emily's going to come down the front and uh, any of us who are close with her and who want to send her off and pray for her, uh, we're going to gather around her and we're going to lay hands on her and we're going to say goodbye, we're going to pray, we're probably going to shed a few tears, that kind of thing. So anyway, after the service, down the front, uh, let's pray for Emily. Right now though, why don't I pray? Because I think uh, we, we need some help as we uh, tackle this passage. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for all that you reveal in it. Uh, the parts that remind us of how big and glorious and powerful you are, the parts that remind us of how interested in our lives you are, uh, that remind us of your love in sending your son Jesus to save us. We thank you for the parts of your word that teach us how to live as his followers. And so as we come to this passage tonight, this quite tricky passage, uh, we need your help, God, so that we would receive your word as you speaking to us and so that we would desire to live this out, that we'd be able to see the goodness of what you're commanding to us tonight uh, and, God willing, that the world might also see. And so we ask for your help tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Peter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands. Um, is it just me or did, did it just get hotter in this room? It certainly feels like it. Um, Unless you've been living under a rock for the last 20 years in Australia, um, you will know that words like this in the Bible 
are some of the kind of touchiest kind of uh, words that the Bible has to say. Uh, words like this are words which people in our culture have very strong opinions about. Uh, and so it is quite difficult as we come to this. Uh, none of us come with a, a sort of a blank slate. All of us are coming with prejudices and preconceptions about kind of what this means. And I think it's pretty safe to say that most people, Christians included, are kind of embarrassed by these words in the Bible. I don't know if that resonates with you. Uh, one of my uh, joys and privileges as a pastor is from time to time I get to marry people. And uh, I've observed in, in every marriage that I've ever done, uh, when, you know, in the, in the vows, those kind of traditional vows, the, the bride promises uh, to love, honour and obey her husband. You know, those kind of words that are there in the traditional wedding vows. If a couple chooses to use those words in their wedding vows, invariably, I've noticed that there is like a really awkward silence at that point in the room. Uh, that you see married couples in the room kind of look at each other a bit funny and go, did, that, did she really just promise to obey him? That doesn't sound, that sounds so old-fashioned. What's going on there? Uh, it's why I think a lot of people have actually chosen to remove those words from their wedding vows. They're a bit too embarrassed by them. Uh, if you can remember back to the last two royal weddings, uh, Kate and William, Harry and Meghan, uh, both of them quite famously chose to remove those words from their vows. Neither of those wives promised to obey their husbands. And it was quite a big deal uh, if you're into the royal family like I am. Um, if you're British, you may remember this. That There were lots of headlines around that time saying things like, Kate will not obey. You know, there was this, this big moment of uh, kind of uh, celebrating the fact that she's broken off the shackles of this kind of outdated, traditional, really fundamentalist kind of way of thinking about the relationship between husbands and wives. Uh, a lot of people in the world are just confused by words like this. Like, why would you want to make a promise like that, to, to submit and obey your husband? I mean, it's confusing. But I think more than that, actually, a lot of people think that these words are deeply offensive and actually quite dangerous. A few weeks ago in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, there was an article by the uh, journalist Julia Baird. Uh, it was an article written about churches who still believe words like this. Uh, it was an article describing uh, the churches who, who still preach that there are differences between men and women and that there are different roles for husbands and wives in marriage. Uh, it, it described churches like that as kind of oppressing women, keeping women downtrodden uh, and silencing them. It, it referred to churches like ours as outdated and bonkers. Uh, it, to, it, she said, quote, that a church uh, who, who preaches and believes this stuff are just propagating an archaic and peculiar defining kind of misogyny. That's the opinion of a lot of people in our world when it comes to a teaching in the Bible like this. A wife submitting to her husband. I mean, if we can agree on anything, we can agree that that's outdated. If the Bible really does say that, it's outdated and we should edit it or just discard it altogether, right? But it gets worse than that as well. The, the, the other really offensive thing for a lot of people that this passage says is that husbands should treat their wives as the, do you catch it, the weaker partner? I mean, are you kidding me? How can anybody say that? It's 2019 for goodness sake, the weaker partner. Are we really expected to believe this? Well, if you believe this, then it probably goes without saying that you are going to be deeply out of step with the culture that we live in. Here are these words in the Bible. There's no getting around them. They're there. 
And that's what we're going to be wrestling with today. And so uh, before we kind of come to the passage, let me say that what this passage is going to do for each one of us is it's going to test our hearts. And each one of you are going to have to answer the question of whether you think that you are smarter than God. That's the decision that every single one of us in this room is going to make tonight. Do we think we're smarter than God? Do we know better than God? Or are we going to be willing to listen to him? If uh, you remember last week and kind of where we've come so far in 1 Peter, as Mel helpfully uh, reminded us in the Bible reading, uh, Peter has been telling Christians in this letter so far that they should not expect to be popular in the world. In fact, they should expect that people are going to hate them, that they're going to take issue with them. Uh, Because we are, as as we're trying to remind you guys, we are exiles in this world. We're strangers. We don't belong. We're out of place. We're not home yet. And so we should expect that people are going to accuse us of doing wrong. But do you remember what what Peter said in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12? He says that that's going to happen, but God willing, what will also happen is that those people who are accusing Christians, they'll see our good deeds and they'll glorify God on the day he visits us. That's kind of the context here. Peter is saying... Christians live lives that don't make sense in the world's sight. Live lives that just confuse and confound people so that you would, you know, kind of win them over. Uh, That's kind of what Peter is saying as we come to chapter 3 here. Uh, He expects people to live this out in front of a watching world. And he expects that the result will be that people will look at Christians and go, you know what, I hate Christianity, but I can't deny that the marriages of Christians are better than ours. You know, I do not like what Christians have to say, but I can't argue the fact that, women, that Christians treat their women with more honour than our culture does. That's what Peter is expecting is going to happen as churches live out these instructions. And so that's the context, and that's how we come to these particular instructions to Christian wives and Christian husbands. And as Stuart's reminded us, there is something in this passage for every single one of us, whether we are married or unmarried, uh, there is wisdom and teaching here for all of us. Uh, Before we uh, actually uh, go through what it is that God is saying to us, the instructions he's giving to us, what I've got to do with you first is give you a bit of a crash course on uh, Australian road signs. Uh, Do you know, uh, if we can go to this next slide, do you know the difference between the uh, road signs on the left and the ones on the right? Nobody, nobody say that it, it's the colour is the difference. Okay, that's obvious, right? The red, black and white signs and the yellow signs, they're trying to signify different things. Do you know the difference between them? The recommendation as opposed to rule, right. The ones on the left are called regulatory signs. They're signs that you don't have a choice in, right? You have to obey these signs or you break the law. The signs on the right, they're called information signs. They're just letting you know things. So the difference is you better stop. You have to stop at a stop sign, right? No choice in the matter. But just be aware. Have, know that a tractor is around the corner, for instance. Do what you will with that information, right? Now, the reason I'm telling you about Australian road signs is because there's a parallel between that difference and what you read in in the Bible. And the parallel is the difference between what are called imperatives and indicatives. Okay? In, in grammar, an imperative is like a command. It's saying, do this. They're the signs on the left. They're the commands of Scripture. Uh, the indicatives are just statements about what is, statements of fact. They're, they're kind of information to give you, to let you do with what you will, to kind of motivate you to act rightly. Uh, they're the signs on the right. Now, as we come to this passage, 1 Peter 3, 1-7, what we find is that there are a few commands. There's a few of those signs on the left. But there are way more indicatives, those 
yellow signs on the right, way more of them. They outnumber the commands about three to one. Now, why do you think that might be? My suspicion about why, when we come to this passage, it's quite hard to deal with, why God wants to give us way more motivation and reason and truth to help us to know how to obey this is because he expects this is going to be quite a hard command for us to all obey. Do you get that? That, that's what God is going to do. He's going to give you a command in this passage, but he's also going to give you reason upon reason upon reason as to why you should obey it. He expects that this is going to be quite difficult. Okay, that's enough of a preamble. Let's have a look at what the command is. It's, it's, uh, let's start from verse 1. It's quite uh, straightforward, really. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 1. Wives, submit to your husband. That's the, the command here. Uh, and the, sort of the, the rest of the command is there in verses 3 and 4, uh, the part where he talks about how your beauty shouldn't come from the outer self, but rather the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's the command for Christian wives in this section. Uh, and so what is it that God, just to be clear, what is it that God wants wives here at WBC to do? It's this. It's to submit to your husband and to concentrate on inner beauty. That's the command of this passage. Now, let's, uh, let's sort of break this down a little bit and let's address uh, what this is saying and what this isn't saying. First thing is this word submit. Uh, that's a, an unappealing kind of word. It's not a word that many of us particularly like. None of us enjoy submitting. But what I want to say is that actually um, submission's perhaps not as big of a deal as you think it is. Uh, the truth of the matter is that you submit all the time. In fact, you've already submitted uh, in this, the course of this church service. Do you realize that? The musos and service leaders, they've asked you to stand and sit and you've said, okay, and you've gotten up and gotten... You, you do submit. We, we all submit in all sorts of ways all the time because the truth is that in every one of the relationships that fill our lives, there is usually somebody who leads and somebody who follows. There is that, that difference of authority in just about every relationship that we have. Just run them through your mind, right? Teacher, pupil, authority, submission, parent, child, government, citizen, older, younger, pastor, congregation. We, we are used to submitting. It's not as big of a deal as we might first think it is. This submission that Peter is talking about here, if I could try and offer a definition for it, the sub submission is about recognizing and respecting someone else's position of authority to lead you recognizing and respecting someone else's position of authority to lead you. And that's the instruction for Christian wives here, that they're to recognize and respect their husband's authority to proactively and lovingly lead them. That's the command. Now, let, let's be clear about what submission is not, because there are so many misconceptions about what this command means. This command, please hear me, is not God giving a blank check to Christian husbands and saying, do with your wife what you want. That is not what submission is about. Uh, submission does not mean that a, a, a wife needs her husband's permission before she can do anything in life. That's not submission. Uh, submission does not mean that you are never able to make a proactive decision for yourself ever again. Just leave your brain at the altar when you get married. That's not submission either. None of those things are submission. Submission is about willingly recognizing and respecting your husband's leadership and actually helping him to carry it through. 
And that's a contentious idea, isn't it? This, this first idea, this first part of the command that a wife ought to submit to her husband. It's contentious. But the second part of this command is, is just as, as troublesome, isn't it? The idea that it is beautiful for a woman to be uh, quiet and gentle in this way rather than kind of outwardly adorning themselves. And, and yet, that's the Bible's advice to wives so that they would stick out in a culture that believes that you are only important, you've only got value if you've got authority. The Bible says no. Be gentle, be quiet, be submissive. In a culture where it's believed that you you must try and get as much attention and as much influence for yourself as possible, be in it for yourself, go into bat for yourself, the Bible says no, that's actually not beautiful. The Bible says that really the kind of uh, true beauty can't be found at the hairdresser or at the boutique shops. And I want to say that actually what this should cause us to realise is that this is, this is extremely liberating news. This breaks us from the shackles of a broken way of thinking about beauty that our world has. A world that is obsessed with the external, obsessed with image, Uh, A world that just encourages you day by day by day to pursue some idealised, photoshopped version of yourself. Do you know that there are so many women and so many men too who are absolutely enslaved to the pursuit of outer beauty? This is um, Tracy uh, Trinita. Tracy Trinita was Indonesia's first supermodel. And uh, Tracy became a Christian. Uh, when she realised that her pursuit of outer beauty was ultimately leaving her empty-handed, that chasing this beauty myth was a complete disappointment. And she made uh, what I think is quite a profound point a number of years ago. And she said that if if you come from a culture where the norm is uh, being thin, then your beauty ideal is being plump. And if you come from a culture where your, your norm is being pale, then your beauty ideal is being tanned. And I think that's quite a profound point. She's saying that actually how a culture conceptualises beauty is it's always what we are not. It's always what we don't have. It's always something that we need to pursue and that we'll never actually reach. And Tracy realised that. Uh, Tracy realised that the, the pursuit of outer beauty is a no-win game. And so she threw in the towel and she became a Christian, a follower of Jesus. I I heard about a survey a number of years ago that uh, asked thousands of women whether they considered themselves to be beautiful. And you know, the survey found that only, get this, 4% of women considered themselves to be beautiful. 4%. I think that should tell us loud and clear that this pursuit of the world's standard of beauty, this outer beauty, that it is a dead-end street. There is no satisfaction and joy to be found in that. And if you want to know where real beauty can be found, well, it's not at the cosmetic counter. It's not through the latest fad diet. It's not under the surgeon's knife. Now, that's not what makes someone beautiful. The Bible says that actually what makes someone beautiful is if on the inside they have a spirit of gentleness and quietness. Now, please don't mishear me here. 
when the Bible encourages women to be beautiful on the inside, to be gentle and quiet, it is not saying that all women have to be introverts. Gentleness and quietness of spirit is not the same as being introverted. There are, and I'm so thankful for this, so many godly women at our church who are gentle and quiet, whose, whose hope and trust is in God. They have a settled piece of character who are also bubbly and loud and vivacious. Uh, you don't have to be an introvert to be gentle and quiet of spirit. I want to clarify that. Uh, rather, what this is talking about is, is the kind of the picture, if you know the famous passage in Proverbs chapter 31, the Old Testament, this description, this really beautiful description of the ideal wife. And right at the end of that chapter, it, it says, it summarizes basically 1 Peter 3. It says that charm is deceptive. You can't trust it. Beauty is fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. But a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. Fearing the Lord gentleness and quietness of spirit. That's what Peter is talking about. And do you see, friends, how liberating that is? Just how good news this is, that God does not care what you look like. It matters not a single jot to him. And so a a woman who knows that is free. They, They are free to live a completely different life to the rest of the world who are chasing outer beauty. That's the instruction that Peter gives to Christian wives. And then he, he, he backs it up with a lot of uh, encouragements, motivations, reasons, truth uh, to help us to know why we ought to live that way. And so what I want to show you is just three quick reasons that Peter gives for why wives should concentrate on inner beauty and submit to their husbands. And the first reason he gives there is, is in verse one, the first kind of yellow sign for us. He says that you ought to live this way because you want to win over an unbelieving husband. Uh, So Peter is speaking here to wives who are married to an unbeliever. In all likelihood, they've become a Christian after being married. That's that's probably what happens here. And so um, I just want to kind of go on a tangent for a second and say that uh, whilst the Bible here is talking to a woman who is married to an unbeliever, I want to be very clear that just because the Bible talks about that, it doesn't mean that it thinks that that is a good thing or an ideal thing. Uh, And I just want to say that kind of quite aside from the point of this passage. It's not the point of this passage. But I I want to address the fact that that is one of the biggest dangers, I think, for women here at WBC. It's a very common story for a godly Christian woman who wants to be married to meet a charming non-Christian man and to decide that it would be a good idea to marry him. And I want to say plainly to you that Scripture says that marrying an unbeliever is a bad idea. There is no getting around that. There's no area of grey on this. Scripture says that that is a bad idea because you are going to sign yourself up for a great deal of pain. Because when you, when you love someone who doesn't love Jesus, that means that you cannot share the deepest and most important part of your life with them. And that's going to cause a, a great deal of pain for you. That, that is uh, actually the testimony of a number of women here at WBC who are in this exact situation. And so you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, you can take their word for it. But above that, take God's word for it. And let me urge you, if you are a Christian woman here today, it is better to remain unmarried than to marry an unbeliever. I just want to be clear about that. But anyway, back to the passage. <laughs> Uh, this is the, uh, remember Peter speaking to a situation of uh, a woman being married to an unbeliever, and this is his instruction. Uh, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words 
by the behavior of their wives. In other words, how do you convince someone who's against your faith, uh, who disagrees with your devotion to Jesus, perhaps they're even threatened by uh, you living for something which they're not living for, how do you win such a person over? Well, it's actually not by fighting them. It's not by nagging them. No one was ever nagged into the kingdom of God. No, uh, in, or- in order to win this person over, actually, God's wisdom is that you trust that person and you follow them. And that's, that's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Uh, that you're not to oppose your husband, you're not to, to say, come on, become a Christian, preach at your husband. No, Peter says, actually, you've got to be prepared to follow your husband's lead. And I think the logic of that, how that works, is that in doing so, a wife is demonstrating to her husband that her faith in Jesus is not a threat to her marriage to her husband. I think that's how the logic works. Rather, the idea is that by becoming a Christian, you actually become a better wife. You become a more enjoyable wife to be married to. And although your husband might accuse you of doing wrong, he will, over time, see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the hope running through this section. It's the same as back in chapter 2. He won't like what you say, but he'll love how you live. Just, I mean, try and, try and imagine how that situation works. For a non-Christian guy who is married to a woman who is living this way, imagine how he would talk about that with his mates down at the pub. You know, ah, can't believe my wife's become religious. Ah, it's awful. She just keeps going on about this guy, Jesus. You know, she says he's so important. He, he died on a cross. He rose from the dead, as if. You know, and she talks about loving him. I mean, that's pretty wrong, isn't it? But do you know what? Like, for As much as I hate that, I can't deny that actually we argue a lot less than we used to. And I, I can't deny that actually it's changed the way that we interact with each other when we make decisions. Do you know, like as much as I hate this Christian thing, I've got to admit that it's improved our marriage. I mean, that's the kind of dynamic that Peter is imagining is going to take place as a, a Christian wife lives this way with her unbelieving husband. So wives, submit to your husbands, live in a way that the world and that he finds extraordinary so that he would realise that the gospel is good news. That's the first reason Peter gives. He gives a second reason as well. And I think this, uh, he sort of zooms out here. He's not just talking to uh, kind of mixed marriages between a believer and an unbeliever. He's talking to all kind of Christian marriages here. And so his second kind of motivation for why wives should submit to their husbands and be beautiful on the inside in this gentle and quiet way, the second motivation he gives here, the second yellow sign, is because of the example of Jesus. Because of the example of Jesus. Do you notice the way that the passage begins? It says, wives... In the same way. Now, the question is, in the same way as what? And I think the obvious answer is, in the same way as what I've just said immediately before I said this to you now. So if you look back at the end of chapter 2, you'll see that Peter is pointing to the example of Jesus. Uh, Jesus who, who wasn't out for himself. Jesus who didn't come to earth to dominate people and to compete with people, but he came to serve and to humble himself. Look at the way Peter writes it in verse 22. He committed no sin, no deceit was found on his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He's helping us to remember the illustration of the most submissive act in history. An act full of love and gentleness and quietness as Jesus submitted himself to death. Wives, let that be your example. 
And if anybody is ever, ever to say to you that, no, to, you know, to be gentle and quiet as the Bible calls you to do, that is incredibly demeaning to you. If anybody ever says that to you, you can respectfully point them to the example of the Lord Jesus. That although Lord of Lords and King of Kings, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. He submitted himself and wives in the same way. Submit to your husbands. And then thirdly, one final reason here why wives ought to, to live this way in marriage. One final reason is because of the example of women in the past. Uh, so have a read from verse 5. Peter says, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And this is a really interesting example. Peter's kind of looking back through uh, all the great saints of the Old Testament and trying to find an example of uh, a a godly woman who submits to her husband. And he he picks Sarah and he's looking for an example in her life. And if, if we were doing that, if we were thinking back to Sarah's life, trying to think of where's an example of a time she submitted to her husband Abraham, we probably wouldn't pick this example. We might pick, you know, Sarah agreeing to go with Abraham when God called and pack up the tents and move to Canaan and Sarah goes with her. Like that would be a good example, wouldn't it, of obedience to her husband's submission. But that's not what Peter chooses. Uh, Peter, instead, he, he points at this time when Sarah calls Abraham her Lord. And it's almost, if you look up the cross-reference, it's almost this kind of throwaway comment. It's not a very significant part of the story. It's in a moment of laughter, actually, when she's disbelieving the promises of God. And she refers to Abraham as her Lord. And Peter, he, he looks at that tiny moment and he says, there, right there, that. What Sarah did, right there, that's an example of this gentleness and quietness, this submission to her husband. And so, if, if that's what it looks like, then, okay, let's, apl- let's apply this truth, okay? Uh, if you're married here today, question for you, ladies, when was the last time you called your husband Lord? Okay, come on, answers? No, uh, don't do that. I don't re- that's not how this passage ought to apply to you. Uh, if you call your husband Lord, you're going to set the gospel back 50 years, so please don't. Uh, the, the point that Peter is making, the point of this example is... It's how you speak to your husband, how you speak about your husband. Is it in respect categories? That's how Sarah referred to her husband Abraham, in respect categories. That's what that word Lord kind of really means. It's an honorific title. Is that how you refer to your husband or is it actually more in terms of disrespect and resentment and bitterness? What language do you use? as you talk about your husband. Sarah models for us uh, respecting her husband. And that, that example is to be the example for Christian wives, says Peter. Now again, hopefully this goes without saying, but uh, you know, this needs to be qualified. Uh, if you're a wife here, you don't have to follow Sarah's example in everything. Uh, Sarah, you're not called to do exactly as Sarah did in all sorts of places because Sarah did tons of stuff that was really bad and really dodgy and really dumb. Uh, Abraham leads Sarah into sin, into lying, into cover-ups and scandals and stuff. And, And the Bible is not saying that you have to follow your husband's lead if he's leading you into sin. No, your allegiance is to the Lord Jesus before it's to your husband. And so if, if your husband is trying to lead you that way, then you can say, darling, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to obey you at this point. I need to obey my Lord Jesus. just want to make that clear here. That's the, anyway, that's the instruction. Wives, submit to your husbands. Work at inner beauty, which looks like gentleness and quietness. Okay, so what do we do with that command? If that's the road sign that God wants us to obey, okay, 
what do we have to do? What do we have to do differently as a result of that? Well, what I'm going to try and do is, is apply this to a bunch of different groups in this church. And the first group is, uh, obviously, it's to Christian wives. If you're here tonight and you are married, there's a sense in which this is most directly applicable to you. And I think if that's you, then as you read through this passage, uh, you kind of have to be asking yourself the question of whether you measure up to this description. Uh, whether this example here is characteristic of your behaviour in your marriage. Are you actually aspiring towards a gentle and quiet spirit? Are you working at submitting to your husband's leadership? You have to ask that question, I think, if you're a Christian wife. And I want to suggest to you that the best way that you can find an answer to that question is to ask your husband, uh, to actually have a conversation with him where you, you ask him straight, do you feel respected by me? That would be a good question to ask your husband. Do you feel respected by me? That'd probably get to the heart of this principle as it applies to you. Uh, and uh, look, I know, I know that that's a tough thing to ask and that's a scary kind of a prospect to have a conversation like, like that. Uh, but I want to say that um, just sit tight because in a second the shoe's going to be on the other foot and your husband's going to have a question to ask you as well. So don't worry too much. Uh, but if you're a married woman, that might be a good question to ask soon. Have a conversation with your husband. Do you feel respected by me? What about if you're here tonight and you're an unmarried woman? I think this passage actually still has some wisdom for you here as well. If you're an unmarried woman, well, perhaps you, some of you will get married in the future. And it's worth thinking about uh, the kind of husband who will make obeying this command easy. Uh, I've already suggested that uh, if you marry a non-Christian, that you'll make it about as hard for yourself as possible to submit to the lead of someone who doesn't share the number one thing in your life, who doesn't make decisions around what you think is true. That would be pretty difficult. And so for, for an unmarried Christian woman here tonight, this passage ought to teach you to choose a husband that at least will be easy to follow. A husband who loves Jesus. A husband who is going to make sensible decisions. Don't you think that would be an appropriate kind of lesson for us to pull out of this passage? I do. Third group I just want to quickly apply this to is the men here tonight. You might not think this passage has anything to say to the men at this point, but it does. Uh, if you are a bloke here tonight, then what this ought to teach you is that you've got a job to do, and that is to help the women around you to concentrate on inner beauty more than outer beauty. That's the responsibility of all Christian men. Uh, in, as I've been preparing this message for this week, I've been trying to hear as many uh, female voices speak about this issue as I possibly can. And what I've come to realise is that uh, men don't understand, and we, we can't really understand, the amount of pressure that women face from society to conform to beauty norms. Uh, to, to pursue outer beauty. Men don't get that. We, we don't feel that same pressure. But we need to understand that, that our women do. And so we have to help the women in our church to pursue inner beauty more than outer beauty. Wouldn't it be a shame in our church, and really in, in any church, if it was only the outwardly attractive women who were pursued for a relationship? Because that, that's what's going to happen out in the world. That will not separate us from the world whatsoever. We ought to expect that that's how the world is going to operate. Only the, the externally beautiful women are going to be pursued. But it'd be a real shame if that was true in the church as well, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if actually, if the men at WBC valued the things that God values in a woman? 
if the men at WBC uh, were impressed by and pursued the women who excelled at inner beauty, that gentleness and quietness of spirit, that resolute trust and fear of God, uh, wouldn't it be great if the men thought those women were the ones who'd be a great catch? I do. So there's the instruction. Wives, submit to your husbands. Don't chase after outward adornment, but adorn yourself inwardly with a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay. And then what Peter is going to do is he's going to give one more command to the blokes, to the husbands. And uh, before we look at it, uh, uh, let me just say what the command is not, okay? The command to women, to wives, submit to your husbands, pursue inner beauty. The command to husbands is not, it is not make your wife submit. Uh, Wives, submit to your husbands. It is not, God says, make your wife submit. That is not what God expects a husband to do. It's not the job of a husband to make his wife submit. God is very clear that a wife is to voluntarily submit herself to her husband. I just want to kind of clear that up. Uh, God is going to give a different command to the blokes, okay? So let's, let's have a look at what it is. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Now, that, that final phrase there, treat them with respect, it's not a great translation. A more literal translation would be to bestow honour upon your wife. Uh, respect is perhaps too kind of limp of a word to describe what's really going on here. Husbands are to bestow honour upon their wives. That's God's command to a Christian husband. And uh, may, maybe you're, you're feeling, as you kind of look at that and you, you think about what the, God's command is to a woman, Maybe you think that blokes have gotten off easy, that that actually kind of seems like less of a big deal than what God is asking the women to do. Uh, And if you think that, you'd be wrong, because honour is a massive deal in 1 Peter. Honour is a theme that has come up throughout the letter already that you you may have picked up on if you've been paying attention. From the very first words in 1 Peter, honour is what God the Father gives to the Lord Jesus Christ as he exalts him and lifts him up. That's honour. Honour is what God the Father gives to his church, his holy temple, being built into a glorious dwelling place for the Spirit. That's honour that God gives to his people, the church. And it's honour, again, that Christian husbands are to give to their wives. Honouring your wife means esteeming her. It means lifting her up. It means cherishing her. And so just to kind of, uh, that, that may still seem a little bit too abstract. What does that really look like? You want a practical idea of what that looks like? It means this. It means that a Christian wife should never need to question uh, whether she is loved by her husband. A Christian wife should feel like the most beloved and the most special person in her husband's life because her husband should be adoring her, cherishing her, esteeming her, lifting her up, making it very clear to her that he thinks she's amazing. That's honouring your wife. And you know, in a, in a culture such as Australia, where there is, let's be honest, some pretty deep-seated sexism, husbands who live like that are going to stand out a mile. So look at the reasons that Peter gives for why husbands ought to honour their wives. The first one here first reason is because wives are different to their husbands. She's different to you. Look what Peter says. He says, uh, we're to bestow honour upon our wives because she is the weaker partner. Now, um, before you get too offended by what um, Peter is saying here, um, I want to suggest to you that actually you already know that's true. And uh, you, you already believe that. And our culture already believes that women are in some respects uh, weaker than their husbands. 
And if you don't believe that, if you don't believe me, then I encourage you to go and have a chat with the International Olympic Committee uh, because they will tell you that no, men and women are different and it would be unfair to put men and women in the same category and have them compete against each other in sport, for instance, because men would just like win all the events apart from figure skating or something. Uh, the world knows that there are, in some respects, differences between men and women that it is true to suggest that women are weaker in, in some respects. If you want another example, if you're not yet convinced, then c consider this more sobering example. A against whom are almost all acts of domestic violence perpetrated? It's against women. Over 95% of domestic violence in Australia is against women. And so it, it, it is a fact, it's undeniable that in some respects, Women are weaker than men. And Peter says, because of that difference, husbands, honour your wives because they're more vulnerable than you are. Honour them because they're different. Don't exploit them because they're different. That's what the world's going to do. That's not for Christians. That's the first motivation. The second kind of motivation Peter gives quickly is actually the complete opposite of that. Uh, he says, honour your wife because actually she's the same as you. <laughs> so look at how he goes on. Treat them as respect with the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. They are heirs with you. And if you've been here for this 1 Peter series, then you'll know that uh, this idea of uh, us receiving an inheritance, being an heir of the kingdom of God, maybe more than anything, that's at the heart of this letter. Uh, that we as Christians are heirs, that we are waiting for an inheritance which is ours, which is kept in heaven for us, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, a glorious inheritance that makes everything else in this world seem worthless by comparison, that is ours in Christ. And Peter says, husbands, remember, that inheritance is going to your wife as well. And in fact, she gets just as much as you do. She's the same as you. She's a recipient of God's promises and so treat her with honour as somebody who is worthy of honour in Christ. That's the second reason. And then thirdly and lastly, and perhaps most shockingly, the third motivation that Peter gives Christian husbands, why they have to live this way, is that husbands are to honour their wives so that their prayers will not be hindered. That's a fascinating thing for Peter to say. And if I can try and sort of explain what it means, Peter is saying that actually living this way, a Christian husband honouring their wife, it's not some like peripheral matter of Christian obedience, of Christian maturity. Uh, Peter is, is, is making it clear that actually it's not that, you know, get your relationship right with God and, and learn a few Christian disciplines, read your Bible, say your prayers, come to church. Uh, and then, you know, if you can, if you get around to it, you know, years down the track, when you're mature enough, uh, then work on your marriage with your wife, learn how to treat your wife with respect and honour her. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is actually saying that, no, the way you relate to your wife is of such great spiritual importance that if you get it wrong, you're going to mess up your relationship with God. In fact, if you get it wrong, God's not going to listen to you, just as it was for Israel time and time again in the Old Testament where God would say to them, just shut the doors of the temple because I don't, I don't want you to come and offer sacrifices to me. I don't want you to come and burn incense. I don't want you to sing songs and pray prayers to me. I'm not going to listen, God would say to Israel, because you, you're just continuing to live in disobedience to me. If you don't want to listen to me, why should I listen to you? That's what God says. And that's what he says here to Christian husbands. For a Christian husband who is neglectful to his wife, who mis mistreats his wife, there are serious consequences. God really cares about how you treat the woman in your life. This is a very serious judgment here. So let me just say, 
uh, women listening in to this command to men, do understand that God has got your back on this. Uh, God has got your back. Um, I heard someone say uh, once that God is the original feminist, and I kind of like that description. Uh, It's suggesting that long before there was anyone else out there advocating for the rights of women, God was. God has always cared that women be safe and be protected and have equal opportunities. God does not hang women out to dry. He does not give you the command to submit to your husband to pursue inner beauty and gentleness and quietness of spirit and then say, good luck with that. God says, do that and I'm going to hold your husband accountable if he stuffs this up. God has got your back. Okay, so that's the command. Uh, how are we going to apply this? What, what all this to do? Uh, again, I want to try and address a couple of different groups here in the church. If you're a, a married Christian man here tonight, uh, I've already suggested that uh, your wife has got a question to ask you about whether you feel respected. Well, now the shoe's on the other foot. Christian husbands, it's time to ask your wife the question, do you feel honoured and loved by me? That's the question you've got to ask. Do you feel honoured and loved by me? I want to encourage you to ask that question to your wife and then to zip your lips. Listen, okay? Men are not very good at that. Listen to what she has to say and take it. Cop it on the chin. You may not like what she has to say, but if she's brave enough to say it to you, then you ought to thank God for that. And as you have this conversation with one another, there are going to be things that you're going to have to work on in your marriage, and that's okay. None of us are perfect. We're all works in progress. But decide together how you are going to work at respecting and honouring one another and commit that to the Lord. That would be a good conversation for you to have this week. And men, let me encourage you, take the lead in this conversation. Don't put it on your wife to start this conversation. You be brave. You be courageous. Take the lead. Find a good time. Go on a date with her. Love her well and ask her if she feels honoured and loved by you. That's how this ought to reply. What about if you're here tonight and, uh, and if you're not married, as many people in this congregation aren't, Uh, Well, I actually think this principle applies to you if you're an unmarried man as well. Uh, That there is truth that a a Christian man ought to honour Christian women, ought to honour them for the same reasons as Peter outlines here. Because Christian women are different to us in some ways. They are the weaker partner. They are more vulnerable than we are, and so we ought to lift them up. But also because they are co-heirs with us in Christ. They are just as worthy of receiving God's grace as we are. And so Christian men, all Christian men, ought to honour women in this way. And you know, if, if, if we live like that, if, if we actually act this out, then we are going to stick out in this world by a mile. Even though our culture thinks that the Bible is misogynistic and it's got nothing to say, do you know, if if our friends and our family and our neighbours see Christians living like this, of wives joyfully and gladly submitting to the loving leadership of their husbands and husbands going out of their way to honour their wives, if they see a culture in which Christian men are honouring Christian women for inner beauty, not just outer beauty, then that is going to make the gospel look attractive. Peter's hope in giving these instructions to us, and I think our prayer today ought to be as well, that that's going to be one of the things that teaches people out in the world that, you know what, there is something to this Christian thing. As we live this out, then God willing, people are going to look at us and they're going to say, you know what, I may not like the message that they've got to say, but I can't deny the fact that the way they live their lives is beautiful. 
And we trust that as we do that, that they might believe in the one who's our example too. The one who, when they hurled insults at him, did not retaliate. The one who, when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Because he, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come up and then we're going to respond and we're going to sing. So would you join me and let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for the beautiful picture of marriage that we see in this chapter. As hard and as countercultural as it is for us, Lord, we see something of the beauty of the way you've designed men and women to relate to each other in marriage. And we want that, Father. We want that for our marriages and for our culture here at church. So please, Lord, would you help us? Help us to trust you in this. Help us to trust that you've got our best interests at heart, not to fight you on this, but to go with you and to obey you and to, to experience the joy and the gladness that comes from living in accordance with your design. Uh, Lord, we are going to be afraid of doing this and we are going to struggle and we're going to make mistakes. But we, we ask for your grace to forgive us and we ask for your grace to enable us to do this day by day, to trust you, to commit our lives into your hands and to follow the Lord Jesus in his example. We pray in his name. Amen.